Welcome to the Upper Room Sermon of the Week. For more information, go to URFellowship.com. How are you? Good. All right. Good. It's good to see all of you. If you're visiting with us today, uh, I know that can be a hard thing to do, so I hope you feel welcome and that you enjoy your time with us today. If you are new or weren't here last week, uh, Ron kicked off a series that we're doing, uh, we're going to be in for a while, called Open Heaven, and uh, let me fix this real quick. It's going to bug me. And the, the reason that we're doing a sermon series uh, called Open Heaven is because we feel that we are in a time of increased blessing. That God wants to bless us as a church, and, and you individually, and you as a family, in a big way. So, so last week, Ron encouraged us to pray big prayers, right? He had us write down our big prayers and put them in his big vase, right? And we're going we're gonna to believe that God wants to and is going to be faithful to answer those prayers. And, and what I want to do today is uh, I want to look at how we need to position ourselves for this open heaven. Uh, the stance or the attitude we take are important. So we're going to look at a couple stories about open heavens in the Bible and see where they point us. All right, sound good? All right, so Genesis 28 is where we're going to start. If you have your Bibles, Genesis 28, 12. And the context here, uh, as you get there, is, is we see Jacob, who was, he's a forefather of all the Israelites. He's running through the wilderness, fleeing for his life at this point. Why is he running? Because when he, when, um, he and his twin brother Esau were still in the womb, God promised that the younger of the two sons, Jacob, not the older, Esau, uh, was the one God was going to work through, right? But as they grew up, Isaac, their father, loved Esau more. He favored Esau. Uh, he basically ignored Jacob. Because of that, Jacob grew up desperate for a father's love, didn't have any sense of inner worth or value. So Jacob, um, dressed up like Esau, and, to, and fools his blind father, Isaac, while he's on his deathbed, into giving the birth, the blessing of the firstborn to Jacob. He gets the blessing, but when Esau finds out, he wants to kill Jacob. So, in the scripture we, that we will read, Jacob's on the run. All right? We'll never see his parents again. Uh, didn't have a home or an inheritance, and he felt like his life was a complete wreck. And in his despair, he lies down to sleep and puts his head on, on a stone for a pillow, the Bible tells us, which, which represents just how hard his life had become, right? Because if you have anything else to use as a pillow, you would use that before a rock, correct? So, so he, he falls asleep and he has this dream, and the dream was essentially a vision. So let's go to Genesis 28, 12 through 16 and read the vision that he had. It says, <clears throat> this is talking about Jacob. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, which is t- with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and, your, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and, and your offspring. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. So Jacob has this amazing dream, vision, where God gives Jacob this promise of blessing. And in the first part of the dream, he sees this giant stair. And a lot of you have probably heard the story of Jacob's ladder, um, but the ladder does not, the word ladder does not really get across the meaning of the word that you find here, uh, actually, in Genesis 28. The way it should really read is a giant ramp, or even a causeway. And I know Jacob's giant ramp doesn't quite have the same ring to it, but the Bible is talking about this massive thing that moved armies so that they could get across rivers or up mountainsides. All right, so, so I always envision it like a ladder where a couple of angels would climb up, you know, and those couple wouldn't have to wait at the top until those guys got all the way from earth, all the way up to heaven. Those, that's not what we see, all right? It isn't what Jacob saw. Jacob saw angels, armies of angels, ascending and descending to and from heaven. Angels coming out of the throne room, throne room of God, going out all over the world, carrying out and executing the orders of the king. Then coming on back, then going on out. All right? And listen, when the Bible talks about angels, it isn't the Hallmark greeting card, soft-focused angels. Right? The, the word angel means herald. It's a military word. Angels are representatives of the might of God. They're the hosts of which God is the Lord, as in the Lord of hosts. Right? They're so fearsome and terrifying that whenever an angel of God appears to a human, the first thing the angel has to say to the human is, fear not. Right? That's the first thing they learn in angel school. You're going to have to say fear not every time you see a human because they are really going to lose it when they see you. Right? Fear not. Get off the ground. I won't kill you. Whenever anybody gets near God, it's even worse, right? When we think about the presence of God, we think about you know, praying hands, a window, a light coming in on the hands, right? A feeling of warmth. But never in the Bible do you see that. With the Holy Spirit, yes, he's our comforter and that sort of thing. But when people experience God, they couldn't handle it, right? When Isaiah saw the God, God high and lifted up, he says, I'm undone. He literally says, I'm coming apart. And Jacob sees this amazing vision of God and his angels doing business on the earth. God's glory and power and life are coming to to the earth. It's amazing. I think that it's easy for you and I to feel God is, is kind of removed from our lives. That everything that happens down here is just kind of random. And God doesn't doesn't care, maybe isn't involved. But I think this vision proves the opposite. It shows that God's power is on the move in a big way. He's present. He's working. He's everywhere. His work is flowing out into the world. So how should we position ourselves for this open heaven? This should give us a great sense of boldness and faith and confidence. This is what's happening in the spiritual realm. We sang it this morning. We know who goes before us. Right? The God of angel armies is by my side. It's like when you were a kid and one of the bigger kids was picking on you. Anybody ever have that happen to them? No? You guys are all the ones doing the, doing the bullying? Okay. <laughs> Pretend, we have work to do. Pretend a bigger, older kid was picking on you. And then your dad comes along or your older brother comes along, right? And all of a sudden, the tables are turned. The fear is gone now that you have this powerful person on your side, right? 
How confident and bold should we be with the Lord of hosts on our side? In our prayer life and having faith for answers to prayer and believing in the power of God, we know that God is at work in the earth. We see heaven coming down into Jacob's presence. And listen, Jacob isn't, he's not a good guy, right? He's a liar. He's a cheat. He hasn't repented of anything yet. Jacob is absolutely undeserving. He's not even seeking for God. He's completely on the run. Yet God comes absolutely in grace with all his power and holy angels right into his life. Why would God come with his presence into Jacob's life? How could heaven be open to Jacob? I think we find the answer centuries later. So let's go to John 1, 43. If you have your Bibles, John 1, 43 through 51. It says, <clears throat> The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will have greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Nathaniel has this buddy named Philip. Philip says to Nathaniel, I think we found the Messiah. Nathaniel is skeptical Skeptical about that. But he goes along with Philip. When he sees Jesus, Jesus says, Oh, I know you. And Nathaniel says, Pardon me? I don't think we've ever met. And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, we have no idea what was happening under the fig tree with Nathaniel. None at all. All we know about what happened under the fig tree is whatever it was, was so personal and significant that when Nathaniel knew Jesus had seen him there, all of his intellectual doubts were blown away. Right? He looked at Jesus and said, instantly said, you are the one. And Jesus says, so you think that's something? I tell you what, you will see greater things than that. You will see heaven open and angels ascending and descending on me. Now, I'm not sure if there's any more amazing statement that any human being has ever made than that. If Jesus had said, I can show you the connection between heaven and earth, I can show you how blessing and honor and life and glory of God come into your life, or uh, if you do these five things, these ten things, all these things, then you will have God in your life, then he's just, he's claiming to be a prophet or a teacher, and that would be amazing enough. But he's saying, heaven and earth intersect upon me. Angels descend and ascend on me. What's he saying? He's saying, It's me. It's my coming. It's my living. It's my dying. It's my life. It's me. I'm going to fulfill those requirements. I'm going to die in your place. Angels are ascending and descending on me. It all revolves around me. In Psalm 25.11, David says, Pardon my sins, O Lord, because they are great. 
Right? Notice David does not say, pardon my sins, O Lord, even though they are great. He says, pardon my sins because they are great. God does not come into your life in spite of your sin and misery and pain and brokenness and weakness. He comes be- because of it. He makes a way for us. That, he's that kind of God. He loves you. He cares about you. He's the God of grace. Therefore, you people who have messed up your lives, you people with a stone for a pillow, even you can have the glory and the power and blessing of God in your life because it's all about him. This should humble us. This is the second way that we should position ourselves. First with boldness, second with humility. Let me show you what I mean. So why is Nathaniel skeptical, skeptical, I can't say that word, skeptical about Philip saying that he had found the Messiah? Philip said what? That he was from Nazareth. All right. As soon as he heard that, Nathaniel said, Nazareth? Nothing good can come from Nazareth. Now look, Nazareth was a backwater place. To be truthful, Nazareth was like dueling banjo country. All right. That's the best way I know how to describe it. Nazareth was a place where everyone would say, you don't want to go there. All right? They're kind of intermarried. They're not very smart. Nothing, nothing good comes out of a place like that. Nothing at all. God would never go there, never come from there. But he did. See, this is one of the great themes of the Bible. When God comes to the world, he, he comes not as a philosopher or a general, but as a carpenter. When God comes to the world, he didn't come to like a successful, wealthy family, but into the life of a poor family. He was born in a feed trough. When his parents went to the temple to have him circumcised, they offered uh, their offering was two pigeons, which was the offering of the poorest families. Uh, so he's not only from this backwater place, but he's also, he's, he was from a poor family in a backwater place. Now go even further. He was in a disgraced family among the poor in a backwater place. One thing we have to keep in mind about what happened to Mary and Joseph is that God comes to Mary and says, I'm, I'm bringing the Son of God into your life. How? You are going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, Mary and Joseph lived in a very traditional shame and honor culture. A very, very conservative culture. They lived in a small town. Right? And the fact is, small town people know how to count months. All right? So Joseph knew that even if he married her immediately, everyone in that society would know she was pregnant before they got married, which means either she was unfaithful to Joseph or Joseph and Mary together had been unfaithful to God. He knew that even inside this poor socioeconomic bracket in this backwater place, they were going to live a life of disgrace and shame. Here's a lesson. Contrary to what Nathaniel says, God's glory tends to come down in mangers, not luxury hotels. Onto crosses, not thrones. And into the lives of people with a stone for a pillow. That's where heaven tends to open up to. Humble people. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For this is what the high and exalted one says, He who lives forever whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. There it is. 
There are the two places where God's power dwells. In the highest of the highest heaven and in the hearts of the humble person. Do you know why this is true? Because God's salvation was achieved by humbling and it's received by humbling. What do I mean by achieved? How does Jesus' salvation come into the world? First of all, he was humbled at his birth. Right? The Lord of the universe became a little baby. There was a time which the Lord of the universe was a single cell, completely humbled. Not only was he humbled in his birth, he was humbled in his life. Jesus did not come as an important person. He came as a carpenter. He was a wandering preacher. He said, foxes have holes, birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he was humbled at his death. He had no power at his death. He lost all all his power at his death. He lost all honor. He didn't die with a sword in his hand. He died with nails in his hand. Yet, he triumphed, triumphed through defeat. Through the humbling came power, real power. What is probably, think about this, what is probably the greatest power, the most unstoppable power in the world today? You're probably thinking a lot of things. But I'll I'll tell you what I think it is. It's death. Can't stop death, right? But Jesus did. Do you realize by humbling himself, becoming a cell, becoming a baby, becoming a servant, becoming a condemned criminal, tortured, killed, because he did that in your place and my place, and because he paid for the sins of the world, now, now, when death comes for you, All it can do now is make you better. If you believe in Jesus Christ, when death comes upon us, all it can do now is make you happier than you were before. More joyful. That's a complete defeat of death. How does he do it? Through humbling. How does salvation happen? Through humbling. How does heaven open into your life? How does salvation come into your life? How do the angels of God, how does the power and the glory of God come into your life? Through humbling ourselves. When did Elijah get the still small voice? When he was so depressed and wanted to die and was exhausted. When did Moses see the burning bush? When he was out in the wilderness running away from Egypt and thought his life was over because now he was just a shepherd. When did Jacob see the stairway? When he was exhausted and stressed out, stoned for his pillow. People who have known God the longest will always tell you it's the humbling that drives you to God. That's when you truly see the angels descending and ascending. It's the humbling experiences that bring more of God into your life. It always has been. The message of the Bible is that Jesus identified with us in our weakness so that our times of weakness can be turned into strength. So boldness and humility. And it might seem like an oxymoron. You know, jumbo shrimp. But boldness and humility are actually the mark of a Christian. The closer you get to Jesus, the more bold you will become. Because there will be a greater sense of your identity. A greater sense of your worth. You are a son or daughter of God. You are God's workmanship. You know who wins in the end. 
You know who goes before you and who comes behind you. You know that God is not angry at you, but loves you more than you can ever fathom. He's not disappointed in you. He trusts you to be his hands and feet in the world. He empowers you to be ambassadors of the wisdom of God on the earth. Your Father God tells you to come confidently to him in prayer. The Spirit of God lives in you. This makes Christians bold people. But we are humble people too because we know that our relationship with God through Jesus Christ is based completely on his grace. So we are bold, but we don't walk with a swagger. We understand it's all a gift. In Ephesians 1, 18-23, Paul says, He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So Paul's asking that we, that we may know the incomparably great power. And that kind of sets him off talking about what God is doing through Jesus Christ. And he says, His power raised Jesus from the dead and seats him at the right hand of the throne, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And he says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. So God has now put all of life, all the universe, all of history, all the future, and everything that happens under his feet and his control. What does that mean? I was reading through Jacob's life this week, preparing for this message, and I ended up reading over into Joseph's life, Jacob's son. And it's amazing how honest the Bible is about people's failings. Isaac favored Esau over Jacob, which messed things up. Then, like father, like son, Jacob favored his son Joseph over his other brothers, and that really poisoned his family. So so the other sons were filled with anger and jealousy. They also messed up Joseph, because Joseph was spoiled and out of touch with reality and was headed for a horrible life. And I'm sure you know this story, but the brothers took Joseph, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery. In Egypt, he was a slave. Then he, then he was falsely accused and put into prison. Uh, then he, he was in prison. He met a man who was on his way out of prison, and he said, please remember me when you get out. The man forgot. Everything went wrong. Everything. Yet finally, because of all those things, Joseph was in a position to interpret a dream of Pharaoh. Because he, uh, uh, because of that, he was brought out of prison to be put a, put up as basically prime minister of Egypt to develop a hunger relief program, which saved thousands of people. And eventually, he got to meet his brothers to bring them to repentance and reconciliation. And at the end of the story in Genesis 50, Joseph looks at them and said, "What you meant for evil, God meant for good." Joseph said, if I had gotten my prayers answered, we would have all starved to death. But in all these awful things that were happening, God was directing every one of them. And I think that we look at that story and we say, well, that's a wonderful story. I would love it if I could be sure that's how God was handling my life. I'd love to know if God's handling my life like that. 
Well, here's the thing. Are you a Christian? If the answer is yes, then he is. Period. We might not always be able to see it, but God is working. God is not removed from us. He has all things under his feet. Your future, your past, all things. There's this place in 2 Kings 6 where Elisha has a servant, and they're in this besieged city, and the servant's scared. And Elisha's very calm, and the servant says, how can you be so calm? And Elisha says, O Lord, open his eyes. And for a second, the servant's servant's eyes are open, and uh, he saw all around the city chariots of fire, the chariots of the Lord and the angels of God. We might not see it with our eyes like that, but we know the power of God is working in the world. The Lord is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and he's working all things for the good for those who love him. Jonathan Edwards, as an 18-year-old, wrote a sermon, and the three points of his sermon basically were as he read the Bible, the Bible says if you're a Christian, your bad things will turn out for your good, and your good things can never be taken away from you, and the best things are yet to come, all by the power of God. The power of God is being brought to bear on every single circumstance of history for our good. That should make us confident people, bold people. That doesn't mean we'll always understand what's going on or understand why. But because God is good, he is worthy of our worship and our service. And we will only find rest in his will. And that will is necessarily beyond our ability to understand. To trust in the power of God for you is, on one hand, to give up trying to figure things out and humble ourselves to his will. But then, on the other hand, to put your faith in him, to have confidence and boldness in his plans for you, plans to bless you and prosper you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that You've come down into our weakness so that our times of weakness can be turned into strength. And we thank you that you've made it possible for us to realize that heaven has been opened to us. And that we can trust that your power is at work for good for those who love you. Help us to see the grace that you have shown us. May we let the gift of life and salvation and your goodness to us move us to humble ourselves before you. Lord, give us boldness and humility. May we glorify you with our lives. Uh, We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.